Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University, and we're glad you're joining us uh, this week. I know that uh, we may have all had our fill of politics right now with the election just happening and seeming like that it was a, a race that we ran over the past year and everybody's trying to catch their breath. But things do not slow down in the world of politics uh, on any level, local, state or federal. And there's a lot to analyze and a lot to discuss. And so today I do not have a, an interview for the week because this is really a catch up day on a number of different issues that I think are important coming out of the election and looking at the weeks and the months ahead. So we have a number of critical issues that we're gonna to address today. One, my reflections on being an election judge and the integrity of, of elections, especially in light of the Homeland Security Department coming out this past week and affirming that this was one of the most secure elections uh, in the history of the country. And so we wanna break that apart a little bit to talk about it and to kind of look down all the way to the local level and, and really look at how states prepared uh, to um, uh, conduct this election, knowing that we were doing it in the midst of a pandemic, but also that we were, uh, that, that the, the tensions, the partisanship, the political atmosphere contributed to an environment that really it was, we wanna get this right. We want it to be accurate. We want it to be secure and so forth. We'll look at election results in Texas and talk a little bit about that because there are some surprises there. Uh, we will also talk a little bit about polling because that seems to be a problem ongoing. And there's an interesting article out this week in the New York Times and in other sources as well that identifies some of the problems that we had once again and what they're telling us about polling and how it helps us to understand where political races are going, especially for the presidency. And then we'll close out the show today talking a little bit about uh, stimulus. Is there going to be another stimulus package? Are there going to be checks in the mail? Uh, again, to help during this pandemic and to help keep the economy moving in the right direction uh, while we await a vaccine uh, for the virus. So all of that will be coming up on the show today, and I'm glad you're with us. You know that you can catch us right here each week at 12 noon on Sundays on KTRL 90.5 FM, streaming on tarletonradio.com. Uh, as well as where you get your podcast, if that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Amazon has a podcast service. Uh, we are available there as well. And I will be posting some related articles to the topics that I discussed today on our Facebook page, and that's On Politics with Eric Morrow. So let's get into uh, some of our topics today. I, I do want to uh, acknowledge that this past week was Veterans Day. I had worked to, uh, to get an interview with someone working in Veterans Affairs. And so we will have that in the, in the near future. I think part of that is we want to look at veterans issues on the local state level, but also on the federal level, especially looking ahead to the meeting of the Texas legislature. There's always a few bills in the mix that relate to veterans. And then also uh, federal services and what might be uh, the focus in that area under a Biden administration. And so we'll give that some attention in the near future, but we do want to say thank you to all of our veterans for their service and to recognize how important a day that is for us and for our country and, and honoring those who served, uh, even though it was a little more subdued this year because of the challenges of having public gatherings and parades and so on, we cannot go without uh, thanking those who have provided such valuable service and, and offering of their time and skill uh, in protecting our country. So looking back on election day, so last week we did more analysis with our roundtable with our regular uh, guests, Casey Thompson and Marcy Reynolds. Uh, today, I wanted to reflect a little bit more on my experience as an election judge and how that connects with the uh, concerns about the security of the election. Now, I know I was in one polling center or one uh, voting center uh, here in Erath County. And of course that, you, you know, you can say, well, okay, that's the experience of being in that one place on election day. Uh, but, but I think it, in a way, based on the data and the way things are going 
in terms of the outcome of the election, uh, that it that it gives us kind of a window. And I think it would be a story and a, a view that would be repeated by people over and over again across our country related uh, to this election. Uh, and one was that it was very clear to see the impact of early voting. And so we know in Texas that more people voted early than voted in the entire election in 2016. And that was very evident in Erath County uh, with uh, many, many, the, in fact, the majority of people voting uh, before election day. And so while uh, we were in one of the busiest, I, I was at one of the busiest voting centers in the county, it was not overwhelming. Uh, there was uh, a very rarely a line where people had to wait more than uh, 10 minutes or so to be able to vote. Uh, it and and it, but it was steady throughout the day. And uh, we did serve a, a large number of people at that voting center, uh, but it was it was very again very steady, uh, very organized. Uh, people were able to come in and and to 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 cast their vote. And I think part of that, and I, th I think we saw this around the country because of the way early voting was used, or in some states you had a high level of voting by mail uh, that was expanded because of the pandemic that it, it made the election day experience, um, uh, it, it, it was much more accessible. It was not this waiting. And, and of course, there are going to be exceptions to that. And there were some in, in some urban areas. Uh, but for the most part, we can see that early voting did have a significant impact. And whether it was early voting in person, which is what we saw a lot of in Texas, because uh, voting by mail uh, is a, a little bit different process. Uh, you have to request a ballot, uh, you have to fill out the paperwork to get it, and then it comes to you, and then you have to fill it out and and, and send it in and, and, and by a certain date. Early voting, I think, will be something that will be with us. There'll be some discussions and analysis of voting by mail and some of the challenges that it has created. But it'll also be looked at as post-pandemic. Uh, where will we be when we have the next general election? Do we have these similar challenges that require us to try to facilitate voting by people who, whose health or whose well-being may be in jeopardy? I think some of those questions won't be there. And so early voting, though, will probably be something that, that will be uh, expanded. It will be something that will be encouraged and will be an option uh, going forward, continue to be an option in some places, but, but even more so in that the look at that to accommodate large numbers of people, given the turnout that we saw, not just in Texas, uh, but around uh, the country. Now, my day at the, at the voting center I spent uh, some time checking people in and printing, uh, getting their ballot card to them and so forth. But a lot of it was uh, I spent cleaning. Uh, so wiping down each machine as people came in uh, to uh, uh, and cast uh, and, and filled out their ballot, which was done by a machine that basically functioned as a printer. It read their ballot depending on where they lived in the county. Uh, gave them their options to vote on the screen, they selected them, and then it printed all that back out on the ballot card, which they then took and put into the ballot box, which then tabulated uh, the vote. So I spent a lot of time uh, cleaning, giving directions uh, in terms of how to use things, helping people in different ways. But one of the things that I think I came away with that I've posted on Facebook and I've mentioned to others was how much uh, the people that were there and how much the county election officials, the training that was provided, uh, the, the, the rules that are in place are all focused on creating a space uh, where people can come in and exercise their right to vote and freely choose uh, the, the, the candidates that they want to, to, to freely choose to vote on in whatever way they want on the candidates and the issues uh, that are presented on the ballot. And I think that's where we sometimes lose focus of that in all of the debate and the, the, the partisanship of this and should we have voting by mail or not? And, and, and we, we, we get off on these, these tangents, which again, some of them are very valid and some of those things need to be examined. But I think what we saw affirmed on election day uh, right here in Erath County and I think around the country 
was the the integrity of voting and the and the hard work of our our fellow Americans to to provide that space that space where people can come and they're not uh, pressured uh, they're not inundated with with all that we see out in the the our society in terms of everything that goes into an election and that the advertising and the events and the debates and so on. Here was space that was free from all of that, where the expectation was is that you walk in, uh, you 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 get your ballot uh, once you, it's verified you're a registered voter, and you cast your vote, and you make the choices. You're sitting there uh, uninterrupted, uh, no one looking over your shoulder, uh, no one. Uh, uh, discussing anything with you, no one uh, trying to change that atmosphere in some way that would be partisan, either by what they wear or what they're saying, but they have the opportunity, you have the opportunity uh, to cast your vote. And I think that's where the, the, the focus should be. I think we're seeing more and more from the reports that are coming out around the country that this was the case throughout this country where we're, gonna, we're going to see uh, close to 150 million people uh, that voted in this election. 150 million. I mean, that, that's just staggering in terms of the number, but do you think of facilitating all of those elections and all of those voting centers all over the country, uh, both in terms of early voting and voting on election day? The other thing that I want to point out with this too, that adds to that atmosphere that I think is so critical that we understand is really the security of it. The safety thing was one issue. Yes, we were trying to be safe in terms of the machines and, and the proximity of people and uh, in, in relation to the pandemic. But there was a security here because if you've followed this in the news, you've seen that many states uh, went back to using paper ballots after the issues of 2016 when there was concern about foreign interference. And of course, there's always concern about the technology and can anyone get into that technology and try to impact outcomes. 2016, we saw attempts, but we did not see any uh, successful attempts to try to impact the outcome of the election based on reporting from our own uh, national security agencies. This election, as we learned in 2000 and needed to make a number of changes with how we conduct elections post 2000, so a lot has gone into this over the last 20 years, but this election in responding to that threat in 2016, you saw a lot of states move back to a, a, a process that, that disconnects it from uh, the internet, from access to databases, from access to voting machines and even ballot boxes. And so just kind of describing the experience here was that, like I said before, once the person printed out their ballot from the, the, the voting machine where it's a standalone machine, it has been loaded with all the ballot options. Once you feed your ballot in, it would read it and say, this is where you live and the options you have for voting, national, state, local elections. You made your choices, it printed out the ballot, and then a paper ballot in your hand, which is a record, okay, which is, is a backup record of the vote, was fed into a ballot box that tabulated, that read that ballot and then tabulated, stored the paper ballot, but then also fed it to a USB drive that, again, a machine that was not connected to uh, the internet, the web, or anything like that, uh, so all of that data was stored that was then at the end of the day taken to uh, the courthouse uh, to be read and to be processed. What we saw in this election all over the country were the use of systems that broke up that process, that made it very difficult for anyone outside in using technology to intrude upon the integrity of the vote. And I think that's very critical to understand in this. And this is why that that many states, even with the close outcomes, some of them are going to recounts and so on, and that's fine. We need to make sure of the integrity of the vote. We need to have these processes, especially with the increased use of mail-in voting, especially with the close margins in certain states, we need to have this process where it, 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 
it's examined, it's recounted, it's looked at, it's made sure that that the integrity of the vote is there. But where the Homeland Security Department, where states, secretaries of state, voting officials throughout the country have been more confident is because of the changes that they made in implementing voting uh, within their state. And so that security, I think, lends, yes, it's a challenging outcome to, to people. All, all elections are. There's, there's always people who win and people who don't. There are always uh, people who are, are supporting a candidate that does not win in an election. And there are those that, that will. That's, that's the, the dynamic and the, the role of elections. Uh, but I think one of the things that we need to come out of this, and I think this is one of the challenges that we see, and I, I would like to encourage people to not just be making assumptions, and this includes our elected leaders. You can't, you can't make these just uh, blind assumptions without evidence that show that, that our election was compromised. Uh, and yes, there are problems out there. There were problems in, in every previous election in this country. There have been problems that we analyze and we adjust and so on. But the extent of the problems that we're seeing are, are not the kind of problems that would say, oh, we need to hold the outcome of this election in doubt. Now, I want to be careful here because I do want to say I'm all for the integrity of the election, as I said, going through these processes that are that are necessary in certain states. Certainly, legal action is open to any group that comes forward and says we question the uh, concerns about this the way this was handled or access to this or the way this was done. We have our system is set up for that to be able to address those concerns and to make sure that, yes, the, the outcome is uh, valid. So I'm not questioning that part of it. I think what I'm questioning is that you've got a lot of people out there who are, um, are, are questioning the, the, the integrity and the work of people who have put a tremendous amount of time into ensuring uh, the security of our elections and to ensure that that the outcomes are valid. And we don't need to direct our attention at them or, or there doesn't need to be anger or anything directed at them. Certainly if there are missteps and, and problems that, that arise out of that that point to administrative issues, well, yes, we need to address those. But we, we need to affirm for ourselves and for the stability of our country for the, the strength of our democracy and the way that we lead, uh, that, that we govern ourselves, uh, that we are doing this and doing it well, uh, that we're doing, uh, we're conducting elections that are secure, elections that do give us uh, the outcome, the, the, uh, uh, a very valid picture of what the outcome is. And so I wanted to, to give you uh, that reflection of having been uh, in the voting center on election day, serving as an election judge and trying to uh, facilitate, help people uh, exercise that right to vote, uh, but also to look at it in the broader context of what has gone on uh, around our country. So let, let's turn now in this second segment for a moment to the election in Texas. Uh, there are a couple of things that I want to uh, look at because uh, I think some of the things that we saw in this election, and we'll get to it in the next segment talking about polling, uh, raised some concerns uh, because expectations were out there that not only would Texas maybe turn blue or a little bluer, uh, but that uh, turnout would be directly related to that. And we see in Texas and we see in other parts of the country that that was not necessarily the case. Uh, we did see high turnout, the highest turnout we've seen since 1992, uh, when 66% of registered voters for this election, we had over 70% then, but 66% of 17 million registered voters voted in this 2020 election. So high turnout. We can see that across the country, while Texas did not... Uh, is not one of the highest states in terms of turnout. We did make some progress because this has always been an issue in Texas with voter turnout. 
Part of it is we have a lot of elections. Uh, we will see this high turnout now, and then next November when we are asked to vote on amendments to our state constitution, which will be the only thing on the ballot next November, uh, we will see the lowest turnout. Uh, usually that turnout averages between nine to 12% of registered voters to approve or reject proposed constitutional amendments that will come out of this next legislative session. So, but 66% turnout high for Texas, uh, in, especially in the past almost 30 years, uh, but that has implications, uh, has national implications uh, because the, the high turnout gave us some picture of what is going on in the electorate. We'll talk about that in a moment when we look at polling. But in Texas, a couple of the concerns here that will be the subject of analysis for uh, people like us who teach government, political science, for uh, those that are involved in electoral politics in the state, those that are running for office or, or uh, either to keep their seats or to uh, try to uh, uh, enter political office. A lot of this is going to be under analysis uh, in the in the months, especially over the next two years until we have a statewide election in uh, 2022 when we'll be electing governor uh, all the way down to uh, local uh, county offices as well. So one of the premises that has always been out there related to elections is that the higher the turnout, uh, the more that that is beneficial to Democrats. Part of that is tied to high turnout in urban areas uh, where you have a higher percentage of minorities uh, in urban areas that would be registered voters. Uh, part of that is identifying that minority groups, which again, we saw this in this election, that the, the larger percentage overall uh, usually goes to Democrats, although Texas is a little bit different here, and, and we'll point out some uh, examples here in a moment. I think what we saw in this election is going to reshape our understanding of voter turnout and of, of the complexity of it. I mean, I think we're going to see that this is much more complex and that you can't just, and, 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 and I have to say this, that scholars, researchers, analysts on this have not just gone with voter turnout, okay? There's so many other factors that deal with race, socioeconomic level, education, and so on. And in fact, if you look at the top criteria or the, the one factor that does influence, and again, I think this one may be under analysis as well after this election, it's education, level of education uh, connected to uh, likelihood to vote Democrat or Republican uh, or likely to vote at all. Uh, level of education, but some of that is going to change out of this election. And I think already we see that because of what happened in Texas, that higher turnout does not necessarily mean uh, that Texas is going blue or that, that Texas is going blue any faster than, than it is. I mean, we see gains that Democrats have made uh, to where uh, we, we, uh, see, uh, certainly have seen gains in the House of Representatives. We've seen some gains in the Senate. We've not seen any wins in statewide offices for a lengthy period of time. Uh, and, and that'll yet to be seen. That there was the hope that some of that would, would happen on the part of Democrats. But what we saw here was really maintaining the status quo in terms of the makeup of our state legislature uh, and the uh, uh, the 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 percentage, especially when we look to the presidential election. That gap has been closing, but it's still very much in the hands of Republican voters uh, in this state. And so I think there's a couple of things that we need to point out. Just And this is just speaking to Texas. I'll have guests on in the near future to talk about uh, the implications of, of this on the national level. But I think one of the things that we have to emphasize is that the Republican base in the state of Texas is, is not diminishing uh, significantly. I think it's still very much in place. And we see that the, the, the turnout really affirms that. Turnout in this election uh, brought out more voters 
higher turnout and that a lot of that higher turnout certainly contributed to uh, Donald Trump winning the pop popular vote in Texas, uh, John Cornyn retaining his uh, Senate seat and uh, districts that were thought to be closer for US Congress than they really were still going uh, for uh, Republicans, that the Democrats in these kind of swing districts as they're, uh, they were being referred to because there was the potential that they could swing uh, Democrat, uh, it just didn't materialize. And I think, again, this it has implications on the national level. It is because of turnout that the turnout in a district that is mostly rural counties, but then some urban areas attached to it, uh, uh, that 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 turnout in those rural areas was significant. The other part of it is that this assumption that just because districts extend into urban areas that they're going to go blue because they're urban. Uh, it's not the, not the case because what we again I think saw in this election is that yes while our our large metropolitan areas uh, went, were Harris County, uh, Bear County, uh, Dallas County, and then even Tarrant County to, uh, th that swung a little bit as well, that yes, Democrats won. But when you move out to the suburbs, uh, that, that's different. It's a different story. Uh, it's, it's a different makeup of voters that while they may be considered next to an urban area, uh, their uh, party identification, their political ideology, and so forth, it still shows that Republicans have a strong uh, a base uh, there as well. And then, of course, I'll bring back my argument. I talked about this last week, but that when we look at these mid-size and growing cities in Texas, from uh, Amarillo, Lubbock, to Waco, uh, we we see a number of these cities that, that are, are uh, they're growing, they're, um, especially along the I-35 corridor, uh, cities in around metropolitan areas in, in Tarrant County, uh, even in, in uh, uh, around Austin and, and other places in the state, that, that these areas still primarily vote Republican. And there's enough of vote there that helps to swing that in favor of Republican candidates and, of course, Republicans in statewide and national elections. And so I think what we're going to have to do going forward when we're going to look at this in Texas uh, is that we're, we're going to have to be uh, more engaged in what is actually happening in these specific areas, in the suburbs, in these uh, mid size cities in Texas and, and how they're voting. I think that gives us a more of an indication of how how far are we going along this line of becoming uh, purple or blue in which is there a point in the future and how far out is that? Because we, we continue to talk about it and then we push it to the next election. Texas is going to go blue. Texas is going to go blue. Well, the margin for the presidential race was was closer it was even closer than Ohio. I mean, that that tells you something about Texas and how how uh, close it's getting. But it, it it still was not significant enough to to make up ground from uh, really previous elections and show that that Democrats uh, really have a chance uh, to take some statewide offices or to swing more districts in the state uh, legislature. Uh, the other thing too that's a critical factor, and this is the one I'll I'll close on this before we go to a break. And that is looking at uh, the voting in uh, among Hispanics in Texas. I mean, what we actually saw, and this is very interesting, and this tells us that we really need to do more work among that population in the state. Uh, we we look at like Star and Zapata county, counties, where turnout increased about 15 and 6% points respectively from 2016. So, so turnout increased, not substantially. I mean, voting was uh, among Hispanics in Texas, uh, while, it, while it did increase some in terms of a percentage of, of the voting population, it was relatively flat uh, from 2016. But what we saw was an increase of voting for Trump. So in Starr County, 51.3% of voters cast ballots. So a half of registered voters, but 47 of those percent of those voted for Trump compared with 19% in 2016. So almost a 30% swing 
in that one county, uh, which is predominantly Hispanic. Uh, Biden lost in Z Zapata County, which Hillary Clinton won by a 33-point margin in 2016. And so the makeup of the Hispanic population in Texas is, is, is much more diverse. I mean, we're, we're talking about third, fourth, fifth generations now that have accepted or recognized or are a part of the political culture, the dominant political culture in the state that identify uh, with conservatism on a number of different issues. Um, and we need to do more to explore that because that, again, has been the one area where people have looked to say, how fast is Texas becoming blue? Well, it's a more complex than that. And I think there's there's some things that we need to look at to, if we're going to chart and try to look at what the future of party affiliation and voting is in Texas. We need to understand more of those dynamics and why uh, there is such diversity in terms of voting and party affiliation uh, among not just Hispanics, but people in the suburbs, people in our mid-sized cities in this state. So a lot to learn, digest, and we'll be looking at that more in depth in the months ahead as we talk about this election and we look at its implications for governance uh, moving forward. We're going to take a short break and we'll come back with more politics and we'll talk about uh, the polling uh, and the challenges there, as well as could we see another stimulus package shortly? We'll be right back. Politics can be confusing, but On Politics with Eric Morrow has your back. Follow the show on Facebook. Search On Politics with Eric Morrow to stay up to date with the show and all the sources to follow right along. for Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow, and I'm going solo today, so we did not have an interview in our first segment, but we will get back to that uh, this next week as I get more insight and analysis on the recent election and as well address other issues. Uh, as you saw right before the election, we took a little bit of a break from uh, the uh, 2020 election and focused on some critical issues in the state of Texas and looking ahead to the next uh, state uh, legislature meeting after the first of the year. And so we will bring more of that to you, especially some local issues as well. Uh, one of the things that we continue to see is our school districts and their challenges uh, with uh, adjusting to the pandemic, especially with the increase in cases that we're seeing. We'll probably get into that some next week because Texas and California now in terms of regional areas surpassed uh, set new records for anywhere in the world, going over a million uh, cases total uh, since the uh, pandemic began. And we need to really look at what's happening within the state and how this is being addressed right down to the local level. So we'll be revisiting some of that, uh, especially in light of the fact that it's been announced by several companies that vaccines could be available uh, in the months ahead and what impact that will have in trying to uh, counter uh, the uh, challenges that have been created uh, during this pandemic. So keeping on track with our show today, which is really focused on the election and some of the outcomes and some of the issues that we need to address. I mean, one of the things that's very prominent in the world of politics is polling. Polling in terms of gathering data information from people in order to understand what the outcomes might be, uh, but also to understand and to engage with uh, the areas of, of, of issues, the perceptions, the opinions of people, uh, even though a lot of times those opinions may not necessarily be founded on uh, intimate knowledge of an issue, but it's much more experiential. It's much more influenced by political culture, their their worldview, but that impacts voting. And since we are a representative democracy 
and we elect people who then go and make the decisions on policy, uh, then that, that polling, that, that opinion polling is very critical. And it's also very critical in elections. It has been uh, for a long, long time in our country in terms of guiding uh, the, uh, the way that uh, electoral politics goes in relation to campaigns, where their focus is, what they're trying to do, what obstacles or challenges they're trying to overcome in order to win elections. I mean, that's their goal. If you're running for office, your goal is to win. That's your primary purpose. And you, and you look at that in terms of uh, what you need to do to connect with the largest number of voters in order to win that election. And so polling becomes very critical in this process. And, and it's all been up in, thrown up in the air and under examination uh, through these last two elections, uh, the general elections, 2016 and 2020. 2016, we saw that going into the election that polls were showing Hillary Clinton with a uh, three to four percentage point lead over Donald Trump. And of course, Trump won the election. He did not win the popular vote. So the popular vote more aligned with that, but that didn't uh, carry over to the electoral college. Uh, it also didn't carry over in certain demographic groups and in areas that were being examined. And, and, and so adjustments were made. Uh, pollsters began to tweak and add different features. We talked about some of this on the show where we've looked at one example would be the uh, Moody Analytics where uh, they adjusted for other scenarios and other factors that, that would then influence the outcome of an election. So a lot of, of this has been going on over the last uh, three or four years and the attempt to do better, uh, to, to try to be closer to predicting the outcome or at least pointing to what the outcome may be. And again, there were problems uh, with this election. Uh, there were problems with polling and what it was telling us and then what actually happened. And so I, I want to reference a New York Times article, uh, David uh, uh, Leonhardt has done some significant work on this uh, in the New York Times and in other venues, looking at what happened and what were the polling problems that we saw again in this election or, you know, the different problems that maybe came up, even though all the attempts were made to, to make some adjustments here. And, and the evidence is really, is really something. I mean, you can look at not just the the turnout. I mean, it was expect it was stated at one point that that Joe Biden had an eight, nine, up to a twelve percentage point lead in national polling, and he is probably going to land somewhere around a four or five percent uh, win in the popular vote. Uh, but when you look at some states, I mean, I think that's that's some of it as well. Uh, we can see some really interesting uh, challenges here. Uh, one state I want to point out in particular was Ohio, where Trump was at one point, it was really believed to be neck and neck, very, very close. And yet Trump won the, the state by eight percentage points. I mean, that that is a very significant miss on the part of that. And another one was Florida. Uh, uh, Biden was up by two percent. Uh, going into uh, the election election day and Trump won by 3%. So again, another uh, uh, another challenge, North Carolina up by 2%, Trump won by 1%. Um, Wisconsin, Biden at one point, at the end of, of, of polling, right before the election, up by 10%, Biden won by less than 1%. I mean, that just shows you how close uh, these these races really were, or this race really was, and that the polling uh, missed that to a certain degree. And I think there's a number of factors. I mean, one was the large turnout, and one that that many have are recognizing. You probably heard this in the news or by other commentators that uh, one major factor here were either the silent Trump voters, those who had already decided or decided on election day that they were going to vote for Donald Trump. Uh, because here he received the second highest total of votes of any presidential candidate in the history of the country. I mean, he, over 70 million votes, I mean, is, is quite significant. Uh, and so the turnout was was significant in terms of, of the number of votes cast for Donald Trump, uh, more than 2016. Uh, and, and the other side of that, though, was that how are people, or the question that comes up is how are people responding to polling? 
are there people out there, and there seems to be, and this is going to have to be a factor considered in the future, is that there are people who do not respond to polling. Polling is becoming more and more difficult to do because you cannot get the cross-section that you need in order to determine uh, closer outcomes. You cannot get the, the people uh, that represent the different uh, uh, groups. So here we're talking about Republicans and Democrats in this election, or people, maybe they don't identify with the party, but it's how they vote. But the challenge of getting people to respond to that and getting the sample that you need. And so there are other dynamics that go into an election uh, that are going to have to be considered. And, and, and where some were saying, oh, no, from one extreme, it'll be a landslide that, that uh, uh, Biden uh, will win, as some of the polling showed going into Election Day, and it won't even be close to the other extreme where there was a chance that Donald Trump would repeat what he did in 2016 and put the right combination of states together and win the Electoral College vote. I mean, there were all these scenarios, and there were, there were problems with all of them. Uh, there were there were problems with with so much polling that was done uh, that that again it it, it causes uh, uh, really creates an opportunity here to stop and kind of look at this and to say okay what other factors of the electorate do we need to keep in mind that we need to uh, look at if we're going to try to be more accurate so going back to this article I just want to point out a few. Um, uh, points here uh, that are made in this article, and I will post this on Facebook as well, uh, that are identified as polling problems and offer just a little bit of, of feedback myself on these. The first one is that in the last few years, Republican voters seem to have become less willing to respond to polls. So I've already mentioned that in the challenges of getting the sample size. And so this, uh, I think this is going to be even more challenging in the future because of the problems with polls now in two national general elections in a row. The second problem that, that uh, Leonhardt identifies is this phenomenon isn't simply about working class whites. He says pollsters were careful to include more of these voters in their samples, given what happened in 2016. But when the polls also missed at that point, it really didn't solve the problem. And the reason that he cites, even with demographic groups, say independent, older, middle income white women, people who respond to polls this year leaned more democratic than people who did not. Okay, so again, it's, it's hard to account for party affiliation or party identification here. The third point he made was it's also not just about Trump. So some of these polls were off in looking at down ballot races or in using down ballot races to think that that would impact how someone would vote for president. But what we saw that polls missed in several states related to Senate races, even more than the presidential race, which means that polling did not do an especially, did not do a good job of finding people who voted for Biden at the top and a Republican lower down the ballot. The fourth reason, most of the easy solutions, he says, are probably not real solutions. Since election day, some campaign operatives have claimed their private polls were more accurate than the public polls, but he says this seems to be more false than true. Because why is this? If you look at the campaigns, the Biden campaign and the Trump campaign, they, they, they were focused as if their own polls matched the public polls. So that led them to target specific states that they knew or they thought were very, very close. And some in some cases they were right, but in other cases not so right uh, in terms of how close uh, the race was. Uh, and, and so this is where polling has an impact on where the money's spent, where the campaigns are conducted, where the events are conducted, where the outreach in terms of uh, the campaign uh, apparatus and how it's engaging with potential voters. Uh, so this, this seems to have been off as well. Another point that he makes here, and just in, in kind of wrapping this up, is that polls still have been more accurate over the last four years than they were for most of the 20th century. So he's trying to
trying to put this in context to say that we're getting better at this. It's just very, very challenging work. And we're talking about having to identify different factors in different election cycles that have a significant influence uh, when, in a time when poll response rates are not very good and very challenging to get. And then the last thing that he says here, and I think this is where one of the major criticisms that is leveled by many in the public, he says, we journalists can do a better job of conveying the uncertainty in polls. Not that you stop looking at polls, because I think polls tell us information, they get us information, especially post-election when we go back and do some comparative analysis, but it's the recognition that polls will never be perfect. He states, capturing the opinions of a large, diverse country is too difficult. 150 million voters we're talking about in this election. And given the divisions uh, in our country, uh, uh, small polling errors can make underdogs look like favorites and vice versa. And so what he's advocating here is that journalists and campaign strategists who are engaged with politics shouldn't forget this, shouldn't forget that, that polls are, are, are like shifting sand and it's very, very challenging and, you, and it's, a, it's very uh, engaging it's the, in terms of trying to determine outcomes, trying to, to determine actions based on where polls are and knowing that much, much more has to go into this in order to really understand what's happening uh, in the country and how polling either represents that or identifies uh, some of those challenges. To wrap up the show today in our final segment, I want to just talk briefly here about the potential for another stimulus package. Some attention and talk is being given to this now post-election, and there are some factors that are weighing in on this of whether a large or mid-sized or whatever stimulus package will be uh, put forward by Congress uh, to the president uh, that may provide some economic relief, not just to businesses, but there's been the discussion all along in negotiations, even before the election, of another check, $1,200 check to uh, everyone under a specific income level uh, and maybe multiple checks uh, to uh, families. Uh, is this likely to happen or not? I would say based on what I've looked at in analyzing this, and I gave an interview this past week on uh, one of our news stations out of the Dallas-Fort Worth area, uh, is that it is likely to happen. It's just when and whether that will be now in the lame duck session of Congress that might lead to ch stimulus checks uh, going out uh, in January or whether this will wait until uh, Biden is in office and post-inauguration. The couple of factors or a few factors that are influencing this at the moment, it's the outcome of the presidential election on a couple of fronts. One is the, uh, the, the lack of concession on the part of Donald Trump, which I think is developing. I think we're moving in that direction and more and more people are calling for uh, that a process to facilitate the new administration to begin in all its different facets. Uh, and, and of course, Biden is moving forward with that. Uh, but I think that uh, the holdout by many Republicans has first and foremost been linked to the runoff election that's going to happen in Georgia. Uh, Republicans, especially in Congress, and even the president himself, if, if he does uh, address this and is then able to throw his support behind this election in Georgia, there's significant concern here about the control of the Senate. And so Republicans have wanted to connect with that constituency, that Republican constituency, especially with Georgia being such a close race, being a, that there's a recount going on, uh, in order to provide support for the two Republican candidates in that runoff election. So Georgia in early January will have a runoff election for the two seats in the U.S. Senate. This is really unusual in our modern times to have a have uh, have this kind of a thing happen. And that and for that election to possibly determine uh, the balance of the Senate and the control of Congress. 
Democrats retain control of the House. Democrats have 46 currently in the Senate with two independents that caucus with the Democrats, bringing them to 48. Republicans have 50 seats in the Senate. If the Democrats win those two uh, special elections in Georgia, they will have 50 seats. Republicans will have 50. And then, of course, any tie in voting, which could certainly happen in a very partisan Congress, then it becomes the vice president that count that that provides the, the vote. And so that that makes it really gives Democrats a significant amount of control because controlling the House, having uh, control of the Senate and, of course, of the White House. So Republicans are very, very much focused on this and, and not wanting to concede in a way when there's all of this debate and discussion going on among Republicans about the election outcome. And of course, also following the lead of the president who is not accepting it for a wide range of reasons, but that that that's one of the factors weighing in on it. And then it comes down to Georgia and the Senate race there. The other factor is the impact of the pandemic. The impact of the pandemic has, has uh, an influence on these negotiations because uh, of the announcement of a the possible vaccines that may be available, uh, as well as the impact that it has on the markets and on the economy. And so what we're gonna see is a time period here now of negotiation where the Senate, the House are going to try to find some middle ground, middle ground that could be connected to uh, December 11th when they've gotta pass a bill to keep government uh, funded uh, into the next year. Uh, negotiations on how much and where that stimulus goes, and then how it will end up in terms of particular support, specific support uh, for individuals uh, through checks. So we'll watch this and we'll bring you more updates on it as we move through this lame duck session into the new year and the inauguration of the president, uh, as well as other issues as the outcome of this election continues to be analyzed. Thank you for joining me today right here on KTRL 90.5 FM for another edition of On Politics. from me, Taylor Welch, and me, Carissa Cole. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.